Welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty, an industry podcast for loyalty marketing professionals. I'm your host, Paula Thomas, and if you work in loyalty marketing, join me every week to learn the latest ideas from loyalty specialists around the world. So today I am particularly excited to be interviewing Mike Atkin, a man who, to my mind, is probably one of the real godfathers of loyalty. And I'll never forget the first time I saw Mike presenting, and he was running a training course on loyalty programs here in the Middle East. And as part of his introduction to the uh, classroom, he casually mentioned in conversation that he has run or set up over 85 loyalty programs already in his career. So now Naturally, I was super impressed and I know for a fact if there was ever a time where I would have to um, ask an expert opinion on anything to do with my, my work, Mike would be the man that I would call. So in preparation for the podcast, obviously, I asked Mike to send over his bio. So I'm going to start by um, reading through all of that because there's no way I could do justice to his um, expertise um, without going through all of this detail. So let me just go through that and then we'll get into a fantastic conversation with Mike. So Mike Atkin is a highly respected industry expert, um, already with over 30 years experience across loyalty and customer management. And this has included working across most vertical markets that you can imagine, from retail, finance and banking, through to FMCG, speciality retail, from airlines to telecommunications, and also fuel retail and utilities. Now, as a leading authority on everything in the business, he covers um, loyalty program strategy, data analytics, um, very strong on loyalty technology, which we'll talk about some more, and rewards management. And as a result of that comprehensive expertise, he has worked with several global loyalty programs to enhance their customer value propositions. In particular, Mike is recognized as one of the leading authorities on coalition programs and has specifically worked on 10 of the most successful schemes. And in particular, he he was part of the um, due diligence team that was appointed by American Express before they acquired the payback program in Germany, which must be one of the biggest in the world. His client portfolio reads like a who's who of blue chip brands. It includes Tesco, AMIA for the Nectar program, American Express, Visa and MasterCard, uh, BP, Shell, Boots, Morrisons, Avis, Investec, SBG, British Airways, Virgin Group and EMAR. Now, not only that, but a number of years back, Mike realized there was a real need from the client side to have a comprehensive overview of the capabilities that were available within the loyalty technology platforms on offer. So he decided to benchmark over 65 solutions worldwide and effectively created a database of all of the functionality and capabilities available to support loyalty programs. Now, as a result of that, as you can imagine, Mike is responsible for both creating and managing um, technology briefs, which are obviously called RFPs. Many of you will know the term. So, for client companies who are either bringing in a loyalty platform for the first time or maybe considering changing one that's already in the business. His current projects include the design and development of a major program in the UK rail industry, an exciting new solution for financial services sector, as well as delivering training and masterclasses on customer loyalty around the globe. 
Mike describes himself as an effective communicator with excellent interpersonal skills, and he really does have a track record of implementing change both successfully and efficiently based on a thorough understanding of the loyalty industry. So, Mike, welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty. Thank you, Paula. So, Mike, first and foremost, um, that's a, a hell of an introduction. Um, you have an incredible amount of expertise. Um, I know I was hoping to have you as my very first guest on the show. I think we'll be going out now as episode three or four. And I've really been looking forward to the conversation just purely because the breadth of expertise that you have available. And I guess um, the first place that I'm starting with most of the guests, as you know, is asking about favorite industry statistics. And I think the reason I decided that might be a really interesting way to start is literally, I think we all need to be able to um, explain the benefits of loyalty programs on a regular basis, because certainly for me as a consultant, I often find I have to defend them because some people see them just as a cost rather than as obviously as a successful marketing initiative. So tell me, just to get us kickstarted. What are your favourite industry statistics? I think uh, there, there, there's quite a few, and I tend to use different ones depending on the, the audience, if you like. Um, often the problem is to convince the, the businesses to invest in, in loyalty, and that's one of the frustrations, as you'll find out as we, as we go ahead. I think the most recent one I've seen from Accenture identifies that after building a relationship with a customer, the customer spend grows alongside the trust. Mm. And eventually, loyal customers spend up to 67% more than new wow. ones do, um, which flags up the need for, for retention. And, and that is one of my issues in terms of many companies, particularly in the banking and telco industries, mm. who tend to be focused on acquisition rather than retention. And it just points out that if you have a good member and that member relationship is strong and powerful, they are worth investing in. And often that's missed by these big businesses. Absolutely. And as we go through, Mike, I'd certainly love to hear your experience in terms of how good are your clients at uh, actually capturing that and measuring it? Because I've had varying experience myself across all the different programs I've worked on, some who are super good at doing all of the data and analytics, but sometimes that comes much later than I would like. So um, so what's been your experience in terms of, you know, what is the, the, the level of discipline that you see around that kind of measurement? I think I'd have to agree. It is it is weak. Often companies have invested a few years ago in massive Oracle databases and they've got all this massive teradata of information on customers but don't know how to use it. Mm. The interesting things that came out of my research when I was benchmarking platforms was that often the the the, um, the Oracle databases could identify a good customer or what a good customer looks like or should look like, mm. but loyalty technology was not unable to convert that into a message, uh, an offer, a promotion or whatever to those specific customers. Gotcha. So that meant that the loyalty platform couldn't do it, so they didn't bother doing it. Mm. And quite a few of my projects in the last six or nine months have been to look at why programs are failing. And when I look at why they're failing, it's because all of this rich data they've amassed over the years, they're just not using it. They're, they're making a machine gun approach, making many offers to many people in the hope that three or 4% will perform and mm. respond, but in practice, they don't. So with the exception of probably supermarkets around the globe, not many companies actually use it very cleverly, um, although they, they pre preach it. 
they don't actually practice it but okay. often it's one of two factors it's technology but it's also skill sets within that within the business they don't actually have necessary personnel within the loyalty department or indeed our loyalty department that can do that work and again one of my consider my concerns in the industry that many companies just don't take loyalty seriously enough within their business and see its potential. Uh, it's just another add-on within the marketing department and isn't necessarily empowered yeah. To, yeah. Uh, to deliver. Wow. Well, I think you've picked up on a point I definitely wanted to cover, Mike. So that's actually the skills. And I know alongside your incredible bio of what we've already talked about, you've already been instrumental in developing some kind of training, both globally and uh, and in the UK market. So so tell me about, you know, the various industry bodies that you are currently involved in or previously involved in. Do you, do you mean from the point of view of, of businesses or, or companies that are using the um, the training uh, resource? Well, I suppose just just anywhere. So, so I guess I'm thinking about listeners and um, maybe loyalty directors or marketing directors who might be thinking, do you know what? Actually, I don't have enough skills in the team. So, where would you say they should go and find those skills, or or how can they access them? Given that they, you know, it is, you know, I suppose in my mind a fairly new area as a speciality um, skill. So, what would you recommend to somebody who is running a loyalty program and, and wants to optimize the skill set? Well, one of the sort of main sources of of, of, uh, of training resources is the Loyalty Academy, uh, based in the in in uh, in the USA. But they have through the network of the Customer Strategy Network, then they have this network of global experts like yeah. myself who can deliver effective loyalty um, training, either in the form of one hour, 45 minute online modules uh, for different sectors, because some companies may just want to look at, for example, coalition programs or financial services or whatever, Mm. but also the the modules cover a a wide range of capabilities, Mm. or they also offer these two, three day uh, masterclasses, which I'm involved in, whereby we we, we get into real detail. They're normally small groups of eight to 10 people. We run case studies. We do syndicate exercises so they mm-hmm. can actually bring in their own issues and challenges and discuss them in a, in a classroom environment. Mm. The point I make in, in promoting those is there are many mistakes made around the world. There are still mistakes being made around the world by people investing in loyalty launching programs and not necessarily getting the team right, the team trained, the, even the directors with all due respect don't necessarily understand what they can and can't do. Mm. So there's a, there's enough resource out there if you just put in training, but the loyaltyacademy.org based mm. in, in, in the USA, but with global network deliveries is probably the best source of information mm. um, that, that I've found. I also know something which, again, we're probably going to touch on what's very much associated nowadays with loyalty is customer experience. Yeah. Uh, and there's a great uh, program, uh, a, a module run by Michael Colleen, uh, that actually does deliver on customer experience and links it to the the need for loyalty because the best loyalty in the world is not going to solve bad customer service <laughs> and the two, the two go hand in hand. For sure. And what I'll do for listeners as well is I'll put links to both of those um, recommendations, Mike, into the show notes. So if anybody does want to look them up afterwards, they, they've got direct access to them. Um, and, and, and thank you for covering off on that. So um, anyone who listened to the first episode of the show would know that I also so said, um, you know, I, I really believe in the power of um, ongoing learning. 
So I myself went and did that Loyalty Academy program last year. And I knew you were involved in, in creating all of that content. And it was one of the, uh, the ways that I got to know you. Um, and I know uh, both of us, because you know, through the Customer Strategy Network and through our, I suppose, our global client projects, we're really keen for that designation to be become um, much better known. So the CLMP to become something that is increasingly recognized as the gold standard of, of education in our sector. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I should have mentioned the CLMP, but yeah, certainly that's that yeah. accreditation is 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 highly valuable. It's it's now being recognised. I think by many companies. I've had a couple of businesses yeah. I've been speaking to recently who recognise that accreditation, and and uh, that gives them that peace of mind that they're talking to somebody who knows what they're talking about. Fantastic, great. So tell me, Mike, what is it you actually like about working in the loyalty industry? You've been doing it for a long time, so clearly it's ticked a lot of boxes for you. Yes, it's interesting. I, I still get excited about it in terms because I think many loyalty consultants around the globe can look at, at many programs in their area or across the globe and think, well, it could be better. You know, yeah. I, I don't mean that from an arrogant point of view, but we all see these opportunities that a loyalty program could performing better because it has certain strengths or weaknesses. And the attraction for me is that challenge of convincing a client that what I see as an opportunity they recognize as a need. I need to improve my program. So that's what keeps me going is, is seeing these programs and looking at them, reading about them, seeing how they perform, visiting the store, joining whatever it is. And I get a buzz out of understanding and thinking to myself, well, I could see how this could be so much better if you did this. Yeah. Uh, and that, 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 that's what gives me the buzz. But also on the training side, I speak to loyalty uh, consultants. I get a lot of um, MBA students because I used to be involved with Oxford um, uh, said business group. Um, people doing MBAs and writing articles on, on marketing. Many come on to me and say, I've written this dissertation. Can you give me some you know, insight? Would you make a comment? And whilst that's a bit of a chore in some respects, <laughs> these these people could be the future you know, sort of loyalty director at Tesco. So yeah. you, you can sort of respond. And I get a buzz out of seeing these youngsters who are actually coming into the business and learning from it. And I've got a couple of good examples of people who've been on my training courses, who've gone away armed with lots of information and gone back to their bosses and said, look, we can do this, we can do that. And that's turned into a better program and more importantly, a better career process for them as well. So it's the training, but also the opportunities. I see many, many programs I'd love to get my hands on, if you like. <laughs> well, actually, I often think that, you know, and, and my, you know, next, I'd love to just uh, get an understanding, you know, of all the loyalty programs you've worked on and uh, maybe which one is your favorite. And if there are any that you kind of go, there's one that really maybe I haven't worked on, maybe in a different country, and I really would love to get my hands on it. If there's any you think uh, like that, I'd also be keen to hear about them. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I think probably my favourite would would have to be would, would be Tesco. I I, th I think from you know the early days of Tesco, who were very clever the way they launched their program because they weren't first to market. Sainsbury's were out there with programs, and in the way way back, and I'm showing my age now, that Tesco <laughs> used to issue green shield stamps. That used yes. to be the way they did in the late in the late seventies, and they suddenly stopped that. Wow. But other people came on board with programs and supermarket chain called Summerfield had a, a points program that I was involved in. But Tesco's held back and said, let's get all of our systems in place. Let's get 
crashes in the stores. Let's get sort of customer service sorted and extra tills and trained staff and et cetera, et cetera. Then they launched a program and called it Thank You, or, you know, for, for people being patient and bearing with them. Yeah. And I think it's gone from strength to strength because they are customer focused. That's, that's their initiative. Many, many programs are not customer-focused. They're product-focused. And I make no apologies for blaming banks who are preoccupied <laughs> in issuing a new credit card because they think that will do it, you know, sort of thing. But, yeah. but Tesco's, for me, have been right through. And, of course, then they got the association with Clive Humby and they developed this data analytics capability of customer collecting customer data but converting it into insight, which enabled them to offer these targeted offers. Uh, and whenever I travel around the world, often the Tesco case study is what the supermarkets want to hear because they recognize that as best practices. So I would have to say the fact that they are customer focused, and I recall two or three years ago, their, their chief executive announcing as part of their annual reports that without Tesco Club Card, it would be like flying blind. It determined where they opened their stores, what products they sold, how they sold them, how they presented them. And that wow. was all based on what the customer was telling them. And that's why they have this this, this, this affinity in, in terms of relationship with customers. And just to throw another statistic at it, 67% of the UK population are members of the Tesco program. Wow. And that speaks volumes. It really does. My goodness. And you made the point earlier, Mike, that um, when we were talking a bit about statistics, that actually supermarkets was the um, the, the sector that you, um, I suppose, really identified as the one that really is getting the, the analytics right, which did yeah. surprise me because I would have assumed, I mean, I've got a bit of a background in, in airlines uh, many years ago, but uh, in my, um, you know, I suppose, consumer perception, I would have thought maybe the airlines and hotels had better data. But but maybe do you think it's the frequency that gives the supermarket the edge in terms of the analytics or is it just the industry overall? I think the, the fact that one of the weaknesses in collecting data is that many companies base their analytics on transactional data. Um, yeah. How much they spend, when they spend, why they spend, what, et cetera, et cetera. The detail for me is that lifestyle data, those attributes, those likes, those dislikes, you know, data is digital, life is analog. We, we change jobs, we have kids, they go to university. And Tesco's are very clever, along with many other supermarkets around the globe who interpret that based on what's bought, the type of family they are. Are they buying food that, that uh, they want to do specialty dining? Have they got young kids? Are they buying cereals? Mm. Uh, are they buying nappies? All of that gives you an insight, and that's where the, the, the likes of Tesco's and, and Ives Alunga in Italy are very good at this, who look at the data and interpret that. So they make an offer to the customer that's relevant. The airlines and the hotels are very good, but they're really only a topic, possibly their Pareto's law, I suppose. They're looking at their top 20% customers. But many of us around the world have never got enough airlines to, to, um, mm -hmm. air mile, miles to fly anywhere. Mm -hmm. So the interaction is infrequent. We fly once or twice a year. Mm -hmm. um, and similarly with the hotels, unless we are a business person that spends lots of time in hotels, mm -hmm. these programs are not very attractive. Yeah. So I think I'd have to agree that in terms of looking after their top customers, you know, their, their, their tiering processes in car hire and hotels and airlines is very good, but they are looking at a, a small segment of the market. And I think they're missing out on the potential customers who could one day be better. And I've, mm. as I am a sad person and joined many of these programs, <laughs> there, there are quite a few that I've flown. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've, I've flown with them once or twice. Um, and I get little or no interaction from me. They're, they're not asking me how often I fly. I might have flown with them because they were the only airline that had that, that particular trip that I route. needed. 
Yeah. Um, whereas with the likes of BA and Emirates, which are my two big ones, then I have a dialogue with them and they're making me offers that are relevant to me because they know where I fly, et cetera. So I, I think there's two different types, I suppose. If you're looking at your top mm. 20% customers, the high net worth individuals, and they're the ones, of course, we're all looking for. That's our, our Pareto's law, our 20%. Um, of our customers are going to drive 80% of our business. Whereas yeah. the supermarkets, by nature of the beast, they have to be more holistic and offer it to a range of customers. They don't want to exclude anybody. Uh, and I find that they do tend to develop customers and move customers up through the deciles very cleverly by promoting offers that are relevant to them, not based on what they're buying, but what they think they could be buying because of other products they buy in store. Uh, if, if that answers the question. It really does, Mike. So, yeah, I think what I'm hearing there is, um, you know, very much a, a two-tier level of performance in in infrequent programs. Um, so, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that point before. So, yes, if I am a, you know, a gold card holder with Emirates or, or any airline, in fact, obviously, I get the best possible experience, um, including the rewards and, and the whole gamut of, um, of the program. But actually, if you only fly infrequently, uh, you don't really have the, ch- the chance to enjoy the loyalty program. So I guess it means that there's maybe a long tail or partnership opportunities within that sector um, that I'll certainly be keen to explore when I, when I talk to those kind of sectors. Yeah, one of the interesting things in the UK, very clever with Sainsbury's when uh, they uh, got involved with uh, with Nectar. Mm. Um, then they did the deal or a deal was done in conjunction with Sainsbury's and Nectar did the negotiation with EasyJet mm. because these these people, you know, who are regular customers in Sainsbury's fly EasyJet. And the problem with airlines is there's normally blackout days and there's limited availability and it's all, all that sort of in, all, awkward stuff of having the right sort of miles. And I have to admit that using air miles to make a flight for me to Paris is an expensive way of doing it when I can buy it for £50 pound, mm. you know, instead of 5,000 air miles. But the fact that this deal was done with Nectar, where if you have enough points, you just use it to buy a flight. There's, it's no different to your eyes paying cash. And that works extremely well for them. It's one of the most attractive rewards because you know your average spender in the UK can take a flight perhaps to 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 Spain or Italy once a year mm. and he can use his loyalty points to do that mm. the airlines are missing out on that customer because some of them try to have relationships with supermarkets shell work with with Tesco's and you mm. can convert your Tesco, your shell points into Tesco and mm. convert Tesco into air miles, et cetera. Um, but not many are doing enough about it to attract this sort of mm. decile four, five, and six who could do an annual trip with an Emirates mm. or a BA. Um, they're, they're missing out on that, in my opinion. Okay, so that's a key outtake, Mike. I really like that. So where we've all been focusing on the top tiers, uh, really don't forget about the the, the lower tiers and the big opportunity, uh, which might have been ignored um, in the initial stages and really focus on those now. I agree, yeah. Cool. That's certainly my, my approach. Okay. So um, so tell us, what do you think then? What are the key maybe success factors for, for a loyalty program? Where's the best place to start? Uh, when I look at why programs fail, often it's it's in the early stages is a lack of a clear strategy. Um, I've had companies in the past who've gone in touch with me and said, we want to give our customers points. Mm. You know, and I say why, um, <laughs> and and they look around the room, or, or we yeah. want to do a loyalty program. Well, okay, why? Um, and I think it's it, people don't necessarily think it's through. Um, with all due respect to these, some of these C-suite you know, directors, they don't. They think this is a fast, you know, quick fix, if you like. 
Um, yeah. To me, it's in the planning. You need to get that planning right. And, and this is why you should go to uh, an, an expert who've, who've been there, done there, got the T-shirt, because if, if, unless you've gone through that process uh, and, and actually looked at what the customer value proposition is going to be, can mm. we deliver this? Is the amount of money that you can afford to invest in this customer going to drive extra business, you know, because an accountant friend of me will often point out, you know, buy 100, get one free. A 1% reward is not very attractive, mm. but it can be used very cleverly. But I must be honest, I've walked away from several inquiries where I've evaluated that the value proposition that they can offer to the customer is not going to drive any incremental business. And therefore, it's often in the, in the, in the planning. Mm. Uh, and I'm going to, talk, if you want to talk a bit later about a project that I'm working on with another CSN partner uh, later in the, in, in, in the discussion, mm. is that we looked at a company who launched a program two or three years ago. They did everything right, spent a lot of money, launched it, shout about it, promoted it. The chief executive was out there talking to customers. And then six months later, the thing died because there was no ongoing development. They had no strategy to move for the fact that engaged well, they hadn't even engaged. They'd recruited a few million customers, wow. but actually hadn't converted them into making that purchase or being engaged in the program. And they'd missed billions of euros in, in terms of doing that. So it's getting the planning right in the first place. And, mm. and part of the planning has got to be that customer value proposition because we all, when we see a, a new program, we automatically think, what's in it for me? Mm. Um, most, most developed businesses around companies around the world or countries where programs have been running for some time, the consumer gets it, points mean prizes, they can do the calculation. And if the value proposition means you've got to fly around the world three times to get a CD, they're not going to engage. Yeah. And do you think that's evolved over time, Mike? Because um, I think it was something that I, I probably learned actually on, on the um, on the Loyalty Academy was that in general that the the view is that consumers are doing the calculation, whereas in my view I had assumed people weren't that they were maybe too lazy and they just wanted literally a you know an instant gift or instant gratification. Do you think the majority of customers go uh, go to that effort to to calculate the uh, the benefits? I think the right ones do. It's part of building the relationship. I mean, trust is crucial in all of these programs, as you know. So you've got to have, they've got to trust you as a business. Yeah. Uh, and if they don't, then the loyalty program is not going to drive any more than if you've got poor service or you're yeah. selling poor products. Um, so I think the, the consumer is is worldly wise because of the internet. He knows about everything. He's more likely to respond to a recommendation from a friend or a relative than he is from a TV ad. Mm. Um, he was not influenced by any of that. So he, he does the maths and he looks at it. And that's good that he does the maths because mm -hmm. that means he's interested enough mm. and he sees that. And there are people that will go into a store and seek out the, the bonus offers, the bonus campaigns, the double points offers, the on-pack offers, whatever, mm. because they're saving up for something, because they know mm. that if they get there, then they can take the wife away for the weekend or they can take the kids to Disneyland or whatever it may be. Mm. So the customer does do that, and it's those customers, those ones that you've engaged that you need to work on to make sure. Mm. Um, and, and I know of a couple of programs now who actually who, who actually added this Amazon module of wish list, put on your, tell me what it is you're saving for. Yeah. And we'll come up with offers that says, if you buy this this month or you spend that or you buy this product, you'll have a few more points towards your dream trip or whatever it may be. Yeah. So, yeah, the customer does do the math. Certainly, it depends on the maturity of the market. 
this is the issue. The UK are probably is recognised as the most mature. Mm. Uh, the USA is fairly mature, but the, by their own admission, majority of their programmes are credit card focused. Yeah. Um, uh, and therefore, people who spend money and, and don't really realise they're getting 1% cash back and just deduct it yeah. off their bill every month. <laughs> yeah. they're, not, they're not engaged. So, so I think uh, it's where the, the market is mature. And as you find companies in Western Europe, probably get it in Eastern Europe, it's, it's growing steadily. Mm. You know, places like Poland, um, where now payback is also resident and taken over from the original coalition program, interesting enough. Wow. It's the first situation where the original coalition program hasn't turned out to be best in market. That's almost unique. Wow. In every other country I know, the first coalition has been the brand leader. Yeah. And, and that's because they've gone in using the skills and understanding they got from running the program in Germany working on the customers and developing relationship and recognizing the customer isn't silly. Yeah. They want to, you know, and I think to throw another statistic at you, the fact that payback in Germany has 95% of its points redeemed. Wow. Is, is way ahead of any of the, <laughs> the big programs around the world. And the other 5% the, it goes to charity. Wow. Um, the customer the members choose. So they, they, they put as much effort into getting the customer to redeem those yeah. points in order to um, encourage them and engage them. When the customer's redeemed, you and I know, as many other experts know, their yeah. spending power will go up. Yeah. They'll come in and they'll spend more. They'll shop the store because they see a benefit and they're ready to collect for the next event or, or reward that they're looking for. And that's fascinating to me, Mike. I would never have imagined such incredible redemption rates. Do you think that's happened over time as a strategy by payback? Or because it's obviously been a program that's been around for a very long time. And, you know, you were one of obviously the due diligence experts, as we mentioned earlier. So would they always have had a strategy to really drive that redemption? Or did that come about through through recognizing, you know, the bigger opportunity from redeemers? Yeah, I don't think it started off with that. It was sort of, uh, you know, 2003, I think it was, it, it started. The benefit that they have, with all due respect, is the law of the land had to change. There weren't any loyalty programs. They weren't allowed to operate in Germany. They okay. had to change legislation. So they were first to market and therefore they worked within the rules and others have had to had to play catch up. Mm. But I think they started off, as all programs should, as an acquisition program. It was to acquire customers to get a dialogue. Mm. Of course, one of the main owners was Lufthansa, who had this massive database already, mm. and they saw that they could in, in, invite these people to join this new and exciting program. Mm. But then as it developed and they started to identify, what I recall happened was that they found that customers, when they first joined in the first two or three months, were redeeming quickly. They were redeeming for small value items. Mm. And then they started to identify that people were hanging on to their points a lot longer because they were saving for something else. Mm. And that's when they started to realize if these customers are saving for something else, let's help them, let's promote them. Mm. And they started looking at the products they bought and associated products very much in Metro, which is the, the grocery partner and BP, the fuel partner. Mm. Then they identified add-on sales that they could get to increase the customer spend so the customer basket size could go up and they'd earn points more quickly. And obviously, that's mm. the, the benefit of a coalition program where there's many places to collect. So they then moved, and it was probably five or six years ago that they started moving up um, and then putting more effort into getting people to redeem. Mm. And, and, and they, they ran promotions, as happens around the world a lot now, where the points, if they're redeemed within a certain retailer, are worth more than their face value. Mm. 
So you, w- when you're getting sort of five euros for spending 50 euros or it may, may be or, or 500 mm. euros, whatever it is, you could go into lots of it was um, fast food restaurants, uh, department stores where margins are high. Mm. They would say if you've got 5,000 payback points, then if you spend them in here, they could be worth 1,500 points or whatever. They'd mm. multiply them because the margins of the, of the product was would justify that. Mm. And that had this desired effect. And therefore, now people are encouraged to redeem and the redemption rates mm. are, are high and, and, and stay high. Um, mm. They put as much effort into people to redeem rather than getting people to collect. And mm. it's an interesting point. Lots of companies spend lots of money and are always promoting double point, triple point, quadruple points. They rarely promote encouraging people to redeem. Mm. Um, that is changing because laws of many lands now mean the points are valid forevermore as they are in the USA. You can't make a point invalid. Therefore, many companies now have to sequestrate funds within their business to honor that point eventually accountants would prefer to get that liability off their books mm. and therefore I'm seeing the emphasis and that's what's happening in in Germany and since American Express have taken over they're even more so focused on getting points off the system so they haven't got this massive liability on their books. Amazing and I guess the key point and I don't know how measurable it is you you might have a better idea but the, the redemption and the additional value of that redeemer as well as getting it off the books is obviously the advocacy that you get you know from that customer so as well as, you know, Paula feels amazing. She's got her, you know, free coffee or, or free toast or whatever it is the, the actual reward is. But then I suppose the feel good factor and telling other people that you got something, particularly if there's a multiplier in place, um, that's an amazing extra uh, brand builder. I think that brands often miss out on. Yeah, that's a, it's a good point, and that's certainly the case, and that's where social network comes in. Yeah. You know, the Paygo are very clever. They will actually give you points if you retweet something or you Amazing. like on Facebook, yeah. um, and, and they are the best advocates is the right word. That's what we're all looking for, yeah. if you can recommend it. And, of course, we will share that. It's an user experience. Boy, I got a good deal the other day. Did you realize that if you did this? Yeah. You know, I, I tend to use in one of the examples I give is, is my daughter who's in, who, who has a couple of young kids, my, my grandchildren. She shops with Tesco, not because her dad used to work mm. with Tesco's, <laughs> but because she sees the benefit. It means that by shopping at Tesco's on a normal weekly shop, she can take the kids to the cinema once a month and give them a yeah. pizza afterwards or yeah. the expense of Tesco's. And yeah. they're a satisfied customer, and she always goes to Tesco's first. If they've got everything she wants and they're competitive on price yeah. and she has a good experience, she will stay yeah. there, and that's – that's why more Tesco look at lifetime value and some companies are starting to do that now, but not all yeah. actually take that into account. Yeah. Uh, you know, loyalty is a journey and not a destination. You've got to keep working at it. Yeah, for sure. And I think the point about simplicity is very good as well, Mike, because, um, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, someone can understand the value proposition and articulate it uh, in a way that, you know, doesn't require, you know, necessarily to sit down and do the maths calculation that we kind of talked about earlier. If you can get it with one quick uh, communication, then customers will definitely buy into it, you know. So I think simplicity is something that uh, I think we're all preaching across the industry. Um, and certainly Tesco has, uh, has done an amazing job on that. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Make it, make it simple. Yeah. So tell me then, Mike, uh, you've worked in so many countries around the world. Um, are there any kind of cultural variations that you've noticed that were interesting? Because I really, myself, I suppose, uh, I really want this podcast to be able to, uh, to talk about global insights on loyalty. So what can you share with us on that area? Yeah, it's always an interesting one. I've, I've come across cultural situations 
more as a result of um, their uh, comfort zones with regard to data, sharing data. Okay. And certainly in, 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 in the areas of, in, the, in, the, in the Middle East where you work, there mm. are issues there around collecting data, sharing data, yeah. um, particularly the, the male-female scenario. Mm. Um, but as, as the customer starts enjoying and seeing trust within these, these businesses, then they're prepared to share. And I think that's where the trend is. The culture is fairly defensive, and we were over here, and we are very defensive over here. And interestingly, I saw some research recently where the UK uh, consumer is less likely to attach their credit card to a Groupon or some um, mm. Uh, company, so they automatically can be invoiced for something. Um, compared with the Americans who do that automatically because they they, they trust the relationship. Um, so it's not so much the cultural from a point of view of um, religion mm. or anything else. Where religion does come in is in the reward. You have to look at the reward as to what reward you can offer. Mm. But I think as markets get more and more mature. If the company concerned works as effectively at it um, and, and builds a relationship and builds trust and, and conforms to all the rules and regulations of protecting data, mm. then as the market matures, then availability comes in. So mm. I don't often see culture uh, as, as an issue. Um, it's, it's normally, you know, how mature the market is and how many other programs are running and how good those programs are. Mm. Uh, I was interviewed on TV a few years ago in New Zealand when I was visiting there. Mm. Um, and the questions that came from the interviewer made me think pretty early on that she did not know what loyalty programs were about. Wow. Um, and I answered them without trying to make her look silly, but that, that mm. reflected on the, the industry that they didn't really understand what loyalty is supposed to do. Mm. Um, they saw it as a promotion, mm. and that's because people were giving out vouchers and stickers and, yeah. you know, the, the old-fashioned type, and no one was really doing it seriously. That's changed, obviously, now with, with flybys over there, but certainly mm. the, the maturity of the company, and that was – what, 15 years ago in, in New Zealand? So they're even they're playing catch up in some ways. Interesting. Yeah, I haven't done any work down there myself. So um, fascinating to hear. And I wanted to ask you, Mike, so when you get uh, calls from companies and you've already talked about uh, walking away from a couple of opportunities, which um, as a consultant is um, is a very brave move and, and one I certainly <laughs> admire. So when you get a call uh, you know, from a company that wants to do loyalty, which um, I think we've all experienced, what are your kind of key frustrations uh, when you get that kind of inquiry? Um, normally the frustrations there are when I sit down. My normal modus operandi is to say, let me come in and talk to you and understand a bit more about what it is you're trying to do. Mm. Um, and I always want to speak to um, a, a senior director, a manager, a CEO, a CFO. Mm. Um, with all due respect to other managers, in many cases, they don't necessarily have the empowerment or the skills. Mm. So a, a loyalty manager, I'll try and sort of push the inquiry up. So let's sit down and, and so you mm. get it from the horse's mouth. Well, lots of programs fail. We've just talked about culture. They fail because of cultural issues. Companies are preoccupied with product development and mm. not customers. The, the mm. customer-focused ones are the ones that win. Mm. So my frustration is when I sit down with these people and I start asking questions as to why you're going to do it, what mm. sort of investment, what sort of return are you looking for? Mm. Um, Sometimes I do get the impression that they don't necessarily understand, which is fair enough because you can't <laughs> expect guys to know everything. But it, it is sometimes frustration when you find you're almost patronizing them to explain how yeah. these things work. Yeah. Um, you know, I've had CFOs saying, we don't need customers to give them 
yeah, that because they come in anyway, you know, and those sort of things. And um, why should I give points to customers who are coming into my store anyway, or that sort of stuff? It's mm. I, I, I'd probably make a few bob if I sort of collected all of those and took five dollars from every one of them. But yeah. I, I think it's the frustration is at that stage. Uh, is one part of my my other obvious hand is, is to run a workshop before I get engaged, before I commit to developing a program, mm. is to run a workshop which is promoted and sponsored by a senior director mm. who stands up at the beginning of the workshop and says, this guy's here to talk loyalty, mm. tell him all your thoughts, all your concerns, all your attitudes, all your understandings and misunderstandings, and let's see where we we, we, we go. And yeah. often that results in getting a feedback to see, yeah, these people want loyalty, or yeah. the risk analysis is too weak. I can't, you know, until you do this, this, and this, this isn't going to work. And, and yeah. you get sort of the sharp intake of breath from the IT guys <laughs> who can't cope, and the yeah. marketing director doesn't get on with the IT director, and all of these disciplines you need to manage. Yeah. And if you don't do that in the first place, yeah. You're not honest with a company. That's the problem. Yeah. It's too easy. Many companies go in consultancies, loyalty, many loyalty providers yeah. who will try and find a way and justify something, and 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 then the program may not work. And I I, I can't afford to be associated with a, a program yeah. that doesn't work. So it's it's probably being honest. And the frustration is 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 sometimes they don't take it seriously enough. Loyalty is. Mm. Uh, I've read about this. It's a good idea. Mm. It always researches well. Do you want to know more about your customers? Yes, I mm. do. But in practice, that they don't, and and that also exacerbates itself when they do send somebody on a training course. Mm. And often I'll get the the big reason why many people come on the training course, or one of their frustrations is because they're not getting support internally. You know, they, they don't necessarily people don't invest in mm. them as a person or the business. Loyalty is just another another department when for me it should be the marketing tool of mm. the business. Absolutely. And certainly the first episode of this, uh, I spoke to um, Sanjeev Nachani who uh, runs Raymond Rewards and he exactly yeah. said that is how the program is viewed internally. It is the marketing department. So anything and everything that the business needs in terms of managing the customer relationship is run through them. And I think that's an extraordinary achievement um, when everybody understands, you know, that it all comes back to that kind of customer focus. So, um, and I really love the point you made, Mike, about the workshop. I think it's a very, um, as you said, honest and time efficient way to uh, at least help the company understand um, itself and reflect, you know, between each other as to where the um, supporters are, the detractors, because there are all of those politics that we as external consultants have to understand and manage. So, um, to get that uh, very clear up front is, uh, I think, a very clever way for you to be able to go back into the senior director and say, look, you can see yourself where the uh, the opportunities and challenges will be if you, if you decide to progress with something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, uh, that that interview was very interesting. I enjoyed that. It was refreshing to hear somebody who took it seriously. Yeah. You know, I, I, I had a go at the banks earlier. I'm going to have a go at them again. They silo <laughs> their, their, their loyalty department and the credit card department. Yes. So, yeah. so, so the credit card, that's where you earn your points. It's changing a bit. Santander are a lot cleverer now with current accounts, but they haven't as far as I'm concerned, if I have an account with that bank, yeah. it might be a credit card. I expect all aspects of their bank, this holistic yeah. approach. Yeah. So if I if I you know, if I speak to a different department, they should be aware of my 
law to situation. They don't. They silo it in yeah. one department, and and the the yeah. customer side of it is 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 ignored, and that's yeah. a frustration. And it's a frustration for them in some cases, but that's normally from the top, where someone at the top says, "No, let's mm. let's do something different." And mm. but still, that's that's what it, that's part of the enjoyment. That's part of the attraction for me, anyway. It's that challenge. Yeah. yeah. Well, there you go. I knew I brought you on, so I'd learn something, Mike. So I'm learning loads. <laughs> Um, tell, <laughs> tell me, um, one of the questions that I've had a lot actually is, um, you know, where a company just says, well, you know, when can I have my loyalty program? How quickly can, can you build it? And, you know, this is at maybe an initial exploratory meeting. Um, and, you know, for me, it's like, how long is a piece of string? You know, like I've worked on, on you know, really short, you know, maybe quite tactical propositions, um, which aren't loyalty, but, you know, came in, you know, under that guise. And then I've worked worked in other brands that have taken three years to build a thing. And of course, if you say to somebody, you'll have a loyalty program in three years, like you'll be laughed out of the room. So like, what would you say or what do you say when you get that kind of question? Because to me, it's quite um, quite difficult to answer. Yeah, my, my response is normally I won't hold you up. Okay. Um, because often <laughs> Very good. The case of yeah. that, there are issues that they have that would need to be managed, uh, and often these are technical issues in, in a retail environment, connecting to different point of sale systems and changing systems and operational systems and what have you is is yeah. part of the challenge. I've even had a program delay because I couldn't decide on the name of it. Um, <laughs> but again, going back to your point, if if it's a if it's a quick fix, if it's a way of acquiring customers with a view to moving into a loyalty program. Mm. Uh, and some of these, you know, even a Groupon type idea, they would claim it's part of Lord. That could acquire customers, but providing when you acquire those customers and then make a purchase, you start a dialogue with them and collect information, mm. then you can use that to move into a loyalty program, invite them to join, which is mm. always more powerful than just offering it open to the world. Mm. So if it's, a, if it's a quick fix, if it's a promotion, a, a continuity type program where they're looking to to run some short-term campaign, then they can be set up reasonably quickly and you're talking six to eight weeks. Mm. I would normally talk about 18 months for a, for a coalition program and that's because of discussions yeah. and, and, and yeah. partnership agreements um, yeah. and building of that and the training that that, that does take time. Mm. Um, I have set up programs within inside of six months mm -hmm. but if you can get the business sort of the rules and regulations sorted out fairly quickly, the value proposition and that is future-proofed. Often programs are launched and people go out with an RFP that does what they want to do from day one, but it doesn't do what they're doing three years hence. Yeah. So you need to get that right and make sure the RFP is future-proof and covers mm. developments that you might do over three or four years' time, which is where experts come in. They yeah. can say, okay, well, you won't be giving people double points on their birthdays from day one, mm. but in a year's time you might. Mm. So we need to build that capability in there. Yeah. So that normally takes time. So Probably six to nine months would be realistic for a standalone yeah. program. For me, yeah. I'd be quite happy with that. Yeah. Um, and I would always recommend to go to a loyalty platform provider rather than building in-house. Yeah. Some companies want to build in-house and, and you always get this frustration from the IT guys who, yeah, I can do that. Yeah. Well, they might be able to put points on an account, take points off, but yeah. the sophisticated bonusing and targeted offers that need to be done nowadays, the management of points, et cetera, requires sophisticated technology. And there's enough out there now yeah. where if once you've got the business rules defined, they can configure, test, and launch within sort of six months quite easily. 
Very good. Yeah. And I've always been a believer in specialised expertise, Mike, you know, whether it is a consultant or a piece of software. Um, I fundamentally believe that it's only when you start working on something that you realise how hard it is. So I fully agree that, you know, let's just go with platforms, you know, obviously consider and go through a, a very um, comprehensive process, but, but get something that is future proof. And I made the point in an interview, actually, which is going out tomorrow um, with Three Mobile in Ireland, that often your technology provider uh, can be a real source of uh, support on an ongoing basis long term. So I think that's something that people can really leverage. So um, yeah, definitely a fan of the um, the specialized approach. And I suppose even to add into your, your um, overall recommendation on the technology side, Mike, I certainly worked on a program, which um, I, I won't obviously name, but again, I wasn't brought in uh, and I wasn't involved in the platform side. But what was really interesting was all of the basic capabilities for loyalty were available. And it was an external platform, but something really basic like the content management for the partnerships I was bringing in, that was something that had to be done uh, by the the partner, the software company. We couldn't do it ourselves in-house. Um, right. So, you know, that was really frustrating and a really obvious piece of functionality that because I didn't um, have any visibility on the RFP, I couldn't go you're missing something really important because you yeah. will want to just build those pages yourself because of the speed of turnaround, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've been there, Paula, that's uh, said. <laughs> and uh, it's a, a very good friend of ours, uh, Mike Capizzi, has this wonderful saying, you think an expert's expensive, try using an amateur. Yes, exactly. And, you know, exactly. and it, it, it is so true. And, and uh, I, I found that and I had a, a company last year that running the program for three years, they hadn't gone, I, I wasn't involved in launching it. I was asked to come in and re-evaluate it, yeah. which is something we offer as a service through CSN to give a loyalty check, as we call it, a reality check on a program. <laughs> uh, and they suddenly wanted to be a bit more sophisticated. And we sat down with the IT provider and he said, yeah, we can do that. Get your checkbook out. Because mm. they hadn't done a future-proof RFP, mm. all of the capabilities were there when they launched, mm. but they hadn't decided because they just said, "Okay, yeah. from day one, this is what we're going to do." And yeah. it's it's just false economy. And and again, getting back to the frustration, it's it's you've got to be careful because sometimes you're telling the guy that's running it that he's the guy who's at fault. Yeah, and that that's that's awkward because it's. It's not what you're there to do, but you, <laughs> you sometimes not. that's what he ends up doing because you say, well, what I've, you know, and I've got it with the one we're running at the moment, um, yeah. uh, Nick Chambers and myself, then the, the guy is sort of blaming himself because it hasn't worked, but it, it hasn't worked because his bosses wouldn't educate him or empower him in, um, in, yeah. in understanding what needs to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So make, make sure that you, you're buying all of the future enhancements on that loyalty technology, and um, not just their current capability. And I guess to have visibility of their roadmap as well, because um, at least then you know what's coming in six or 12 or, you know, three years time even. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, uh, often they're thinking much further ahead than, you know, one individual company that's just getting into loyalty maybe for the first time. Yeah. And we told technology providers, it doesn't necessarily cost you money, it costs you time. Mm. But they're all quite happy to come along and present their platform to you and present it. And mm. these guys understand it. The, you know, the, the companies that are running big loyalty programs around the globe are very proud of what they've got. Mm. Uh, and prices are nowhere near what they used to be. In, mm. in the early days of, I think, the Amex One membership rewards run by Frequency Marketing, as it was then, cost about $4 million uh, dollars to to develop. Wow. Um, once it's developed, 
then it's really a case of just configuring it and the margins are quite attractive. So the deals have come mm. down. But mm. these companies are more than happy to come along and present to you and all mm. of your staff and say, look, this is what our platform can do. Mm-hmm. And all you've got to do is spend some time there. You don't need to invest in that. You don't, they won't mm. charge you for that. But certainly it's a shame that many people don't see that. And that's where the IT guys, they go to the IT guy and mm. he says, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And it'll, in six months' time, I can make that amendment and mm. you know, the opportunity <laughs> is lost. <laughs> Absolutely. So just the final few then, Mike, um, I think a key one I wanted to ask you about are what new trends do you think are um, emerging in loyalty marketing um, that maybe our listeners need to be aware of or thinking about? Yeah, I think, um, as I've already mentioned, uh, customer experience is getting more and more relevant. I'm finding that really, and I've added that into to, to our masterclasses, and I know we're working on 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 customer relationships as one of the modules within within the um, Loyalty Academy, mm. because if you don't get that right, it doesn't work. So, uh, getting the customer experience right, and many customers, if they had a good experience, they're in a far better frame of mind for purchasing items. It's common sense, really, and we mm. stop to think about it, because we all get frustrated uh, sometimes when we're shopping. We can't find what we're looking for or, mm-hmm. or you know the store opening isn't convenient or the staff are not available or whatever it may be so corporate social responsibility is the other one um, people using the relationship they have with customers to make donations to charity mm. um, Lovely. And, and, yeah. and now company it's always it always researches well people say yes I'll do that but in practice it doesn't actually people don't charity perhaps begins at home Mm. but I am finding now companies are looking more closely at it um, as using this relationship they have with customers and enabling customers or empowering customers if you like to convert their points into a donation to charity yeah and of course in the UK there's a benefit there because the government will add 25% to the value of any investment you make any any donation you make yeah uh, if you're a UK taxpayer Mm. so it actually can increase the value of the point so you have to look very carefully in the website to find out which companies they're prepared to um, Mm -hmm. uh, donate to Mm -hmm. but I think corporate social responsibility customer experience and then of course social networks is coming on Mm. uh, and social networks as a means of communicating with customers Uh, I still have issues on how you evaluate the ROI on that Mm. but I think you need to be there Mm. Um, but of course yeah. you do leave yourself bare if you give bad service <laughs> yeah. then you're going to get back you know I mean Continental Airlines had to change their name because of Continental Airlines sucks I think was all over <laughs> the internet once because yeah. they did it but but no I think certainly customer experience get that right uh, in a loyalty program and the two go hand in hand they'll work mm. um, the other trend which is not so much a trend it's a requirement that's GDPR yes yeah. And that's understanding that again. That's another module that we're working on with the Loyalty Academy at the moment. Yeah. Understanding that because managing customers' data and owning data is um, very, very important nowadays. And yeah. the the costs, the implications of not conforming to requirements are four yeah. percent of your total revenue. And you've seen that from uh, many yeah. companies have suffered. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a huge risk not to get that right. I mean, it's just it's just unthinkable, um, especially now that it's been enforced for for over a year. That uh, um, that people That's haven't right. got that sorted. So, so certainly one to um, to be very, um, you know, risk averse. <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah. And you, you mentioned something yesterday um, offline, Mike, about um, a new app, which I thought was a very interesting concept. And I think it was more in the context of subscription programs like, say, Netflix or like an Amazon Prime, but where somebody's built an application which will auto cancel those for you. Do you think there's um, a possibility of that coming into the loyalty industry? 
Well, I think it's got a connection to it, isn't it? I mean, the interesting thing is that this this guy who's developed this obviously has looked at the customer experience mm. because it is a frustration for customers that we, we sign up for these things and it might be, you know, Amazon Prime or what have you and we do a three-month mm. trial and then, oh, I forgot to make a note of that. And then suddenly you see it on your statement, they've taken, mm. you know, nine ninety nine out of your out of your account and what have you. Yeah. So he's seen that. And I think it would be, there are some subscription-based models around the world um, and a way of acquiring customers is to get them to give them a, a few trials. So yeah. I think, yes, it could be. Uh, in, in same as social networks is now being part of loyalty and customer experiences, mm. then this would be a solution which many would, Mm. would want to sort of buy yeah. into. Absolutely. Uh, and it's interesting, it's clever. I think it only works on Apple at the moment, so they're still working on, mm. on the Android version. But it's, I think it could be something. And, and what yeah. will happen is that the, um, the media will get hold of it and therefore customers will be aware yeah. um, that it can be done and they'll be seeking out companies mm. to offer it as a service. So mm. uh, I think it it's, yeah, good point. I think it, uh, it's yeah. one of a, you know, a trend that's watched this space, as I say. It, yeah, yeah. Brand new, hot off the presses. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me then, uh, Mike, just the final few, um, what kind of uh, resources do you recommend if people want to stay up to date? Do you go to any particular conferences or um, are there websites that you, you like to recommend or, or anything in that space? Yeah, I think certainly the, the wise marketer um, is, is regist- free registration. Yes. Um, you get a weekly newsletter. Yeah. It's now very global. It wasn't yeah. global, but uh, it's changed over recent years and getting more of a, mm-hmm. a global awareness. It was very US-based before. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another one called Calaqui. Um, oh, yeah. Which is also another an- another source that uh, that I sign into that gives you sort of insights as to what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, conference-wise, I'm, I'm a bit sort of... Um, perplexed about conferences because I tend they tend to turn out to be people standing up selling their stuff um, <laughs> and, and I've been to some where I've seen someone presenting something which they were presenting four or five years ago um, yeah. you know and you get the usual suspects who are there so yeah. I'm always selective within that in terms of conferences gotcha. um, the one in the UK which is a loyalty surgery mm. is, is quite a clever one mm. where people come and discuss situations and that's that's a very interesting one mm. they get some good speakers but also the Wise Marketer in conjunction with the Loyalty Academy run conferences. They tend to be US-based, but it's mm. quite nice to have a trip to Florida for a few days. Sure. They have some very <laughs> good speakers. Yeah. Um, and the speakers tend to open up a bit more. They get some Fortune 500 guys, CEOs Great. coming in and presenting and talking about things and taking a and a And they can be far more valuable in terms of getting an understanding to say nothing of the networking opportunities part of them. But other than that, most of the conferences are run by technology providers or solution providers. And they're just churning out their own people telling them how wonderful their program is. Mm. which is good in some respects, but you yeah. don't need to go to a conference on that. There's loads of stuff. Um, you know, you and I know if you put mm. loyalty into uh, to Google, you could be there for weeks. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and certainly no, nobody wants to go to a conference where there's a sales agenda. It is very much, you know, it has to be around education. And I haven't been to the one in Florida, although I'm, I'm determined to get there next year. Uh, <laughs> so watch this space on that. But really good to hear that the level of seniority there adds a whole other dimension, I suppose, from my perspective in terms of justifying the trip. Um, it's, a, it's a very long way from Dubai to, uh, to Orlando, but um, certainly very keen to get there. And again, as I said earlier, I'll put links to the Wise Marketeer and to Colloquy into the show notes so people can look that up. And okay. yeah, the last thing then um, is just, is there anything else that we haven't covered, Mike, that you wanted to add? 
Um, no, I think we've covered most. I just wanted to sort of share this project that um, I'm working on with a CSN colleague at the moment, Nick Chambers, and, yeah. and it highlights the situation that has happened as a result of me doing some training. Um, and I have to say, out of all the courses I've run over the years, I've yet to run a course where it hasn't resulted in me getting a client, okay. um, which is great for me. But this particular guy came on the course about a year ago, mm. asked lots of questions, was running a program in Portugal. It mm -hmm. was a program run by the company that run all the motorways in, okay. in, in Portugal. Mm. They do all the tolls, et cetera. Got a market share, got, you know, total exclusivity, almost a sort of a, um, a monopoly, if you mm. like. But the guy came along, was asking lots of questions, and he came up to the end of the course, shook my hand, said, thanks very much. It was very helpful, Mike. Um, would you, you know, can you, can you help us? And I said, well, I'd love to, you know, and didn't think any more about it. And maybe mm. he went back. And anyway, about three or four months ago, he came in touch and said, I'm, you know, we're ready to send out an RFP. Are you interested? And he sent the RFP. Mm. Um, I knew the answers. I knew what he wanted to hear. Mm. And we got the work. And Nick and I have been out there several times to Portugal. Mm. And we've really just taken this program, which was started three years ago, and done this reality check on it, warts and all, and mm. identified all the areas which need to be improved um, from rewards through to fulfillment, through to engagement, through mm. data collection, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a useful exercise for many companies to do, to revisit their program Lovely. and be honest. Yeah. Look at it and, and, and look at it in the eyes of a consumer. Would I really bother to do that? Yeah. Uh, and I think if a few started doing that, they might be in a bit of rude awakening. The yeah. interesting thing is that we're looking to save this company over a million euros on what they're doing. Wow. So by doing that work, it can make a hell of a difference because they're not targeting their offers. They're spending lots and lots of money, which is going yeah. down the drain. They have no idea whether it's working or not. And mm. and that's the beauty of a loyalty program. At least if you target an offer, you can evaluate it and see if it, it does drive return on investment. Otherwise, mm. why do it? Amazing. Well, that's been a phenomenal learning for me, Mike. Um, I knew it would be a fantastic conversation and it always is. So I really want to thank you for your time and expertise and again, growing the overall industry because uh, I'm a firm believer that people like you are um, are growing the respect levels uh, for all of us. Um, so, so really thank you for that. Um, and then just tell us uh, if, if somebody wants to get in contact with you, Mike, where's the best place to contact you? Probably the customerstrategynetwork.com. Um, okay. I'm a member on there, so they can they can send all, all my all my LinkedIn group. Um, <laughs> I'm, I, I also have a Twitter tab, Lordy Guru. Great. So if anyone wants to join that, so uh, any of those you want to add those to the presentation. To the but thanks very much, for I've enjoyed it. It's uh, it's a great idea, and uh, I wish you well with it. Thanks a million, Mike. I'll talk to you again. Bye now. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Loyalty. If you'd like me to send you the latest show each week, simply sign up for the show newsletter on letstalkloyalty.com and I'll send you the latest episode to your inbox every Thursday. Or just head to your favorite podcast platform, find Let's Talk Loyalty and subscribe. Of course, I'd love your feedback and reviews. And thanks again for supporting the show.